be with you this morning. If you have your Bibles, I'll be reading from John chapter 9. I've been doing a study at Midway uh, on the seven signs of Christ from the Gospel of John, and uh, we're at chapter 9, and so you're going to actually get to hear it before they do tonight. So uh, let me know if it's not any good, and I'll get back to the work. But we have a perplexing situation, a deeply uh, personal, emotional situation in many ways here. I wonder if you can remember a time uh, when you went through a trial, something that was very difficult, maybe a relational problem, maybe a health problem, uh, something related. Well, the, the trial itself is, is frustrating enough, but there are scenarios, things that can happen that make it even worse. Uh, the first that comes to mind is to suffer, consider maybe a health problem. You're in pain, you're suffering, and it doesn't ever seem to go away. You've been to one doctor after another doctor, and the most frustrating thing to hear is we don't know what's wrong with you. Uh, but there is even a worse scenario, I think, that can make it even worse, and that is to be given the wrong diagnosis. Now, it's one thing if it's a health problem, but if it's an emotional, relational problem, and you're told the cause of it, and when in fact what you've been told is wrong, it can be deeply personal, deeply emotional. And we see something of this uh, in our passage before us today, a warning about being quick to judge uh, what is going on in our lives and in the lives of other people. And so I'll pick up reading in verse 1. This is chapter 9 of John as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the work of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the eyes of the mud. He anointed the eyes with the mud and said to him, "Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent." So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors of those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, "Is this not the man we used to sit, see sit and beg?" And some said, "It is he." Others said, "No, but he is like him." And he kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. And they said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. Well, we begin in verse 1 with a sad reality of life, unexplained suffering. We read as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who had been blind from birth. And given that he had been blind from birth, he would never know a day uh, of what vision, what sight would be like. So you know, that might uh, leave a little concern. He would, however, deal with many consequences of being blind. Uh, first and foremost, uh, he would not be able to support himself. Uh, he would be financially destitute, dependent upon others. And we know this from verse 8. Uh, he was known by his neighbors to be a beggar. He was known as the beggar. Uh, he would sit outside of the temple, not being permitted to enter into the temple because of his defect. And he would 
be at the mercy of worshipers as they came and as they went. But a second reality for this man is, is related and yet deeply personal. This man would not be able to work or produce anything. Now, I know that in some circles in America, this has been perfected into an art. People like this. Uh, others dream of retirement at 50 so that they can you know, sail on their boat and, and relax. But frankly, in life, it doesn't really work out that way. We were created to work and to produce, and yet this mysteriously would be denied this man. He would barely have enough money uh, at least what he could beg, he would take in and could barely meet his needs. And he would be dependent realistically on his parents who show up later in this passage. Well, as sad as this predicament is, the disciples' question reveal a typical way that people approach questions and issues like this. In verse 3, they ask, Rabbi, who sinned, uh, this man or his parents, that he was born this way? Now, one commentator in particular, I think, put his finger right on the issue. They are approaching it as if it was a theological puzzle, a, a mystery to be solved. And I would simply add that it appears to be a type of defense mechanism, a way to understand affliction in order that we ourselves might avoid it. It's so much easier to believe that he got what he deserved. Uh, what the question reveals is the typical Jewish Mindset, the tendency of that day uh, was to assign cause uh, to personal hardships, you know, and, and to do so in a very pedantic, uh, narrow manner. And this is why, of course, the crippled, the lame, and the blind were viewed as sinners. They were second class citizens. And of course, Jesus would have nothing to do with that. He welcomed them. But the mindset was that they were spiritually inferior. It must have been something that you did. Well, consider the first part of the question, just briefly. Did the parents bring this hardship on their son? Well, when you think about the question, it is hard to disagree that some parents act in sinful ways and so bring hardships on their children. We might we may think of a, a mother who abused drugs while she was pregnant or alcohol and uh, her son or daughter was affected because of it or, or, or her husband who not even a husband, a man who impregnated his girlfriend and then left and decided to never be a father to the child. Now, this certainly is an example of what parents can do to children. But their question, while theoretically possible, is not the reason for the blindness. It's mere speculation. But think of, for a moment the second half of this question. You know, was this man born blind because of his own sin? question is a little bit more complex when you think about it. Now, he was born blind. And if he was born that way, then how could he have committed sins? You know, this is where the tortured logic begins to surface. You know, what many had concluded is that children in the womb could commit sins and then later have to pay for them. Well, that's at least the implication. Now, I'm not denying that children at birth are sinners, and if we are sinners, then we certainly sin. It's that simple. Mothers, you know, those kicks in the womb may have been anger-driven. I don't know, okay? It's not for me to say. I do remember the birth of all three of my children, and not one of them appeared to be happy to arrive. But that's a far cry from the belief that children with defects are somehow being punished for their defects. 
Just think of what an albatross that would be. To walk around day after day, year after year, with that error that you had been taught uh, for as long as you can remember. And yet, it is even reported in sources that some of the rabbis taught that passages like Genesis 25 where Jacob and Esau struggled in the womb uh, was an example, was proof of, of their theory. Well, what's clear is that to believe in this is to engage in high-handed speculation. You know, when we start assigning cause to effect, you know, blindness was caused by personal sin. We've gone way too far. You know, how would we ever begin to prove it? Well, before we move on, it is important to note that Scripture does affirm we suffer because of our sins. I think daily life will affirm that. Not only do we suffer for specific sins, all suffering can be traced back to Adam's sin. Scriptures like Romans 8 remind us that the, the entire world is groaning in the pains of childbirth, longing for the day of our adoption, our final adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Well, the problem Jesus is addressing is that in many circumstances, we just don't know. We don't know why people suffer the way they do. And if we don't know why, then never should we burden people with speculations and, and just rank speculations and theories. Well, we do know one thing for sure, and this is what Jesus makes very plain here, and this is what we should always make plain to people who suffer. Verse 3, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. The second part of that, whatever the cause, God's glory can and will be displayed. And that answer is full of hope. If by works of God, Jesus means that God will be glorified, and in this case, in delivering him and showing mercy on him and saving, saving his soul. It does not, by the way, mean that God created the problem in order to solve it. That's our federal government who does that, right? We again go back to Romans 8. Uh, we observe the effects of man's rebellion from God. Sin has introduced all manner of defects and miseries into the world, some of which God doesn't choose to stop, and we don't know why. But that's why there is always hope in our suffering, because God can and will use it to reveal Himself, His mercy and His kindness to His people. And that's certainly what we see in the passage. Well, before we move on and examine what Jesus does, notice again the clear difference in their approach uh, to the situation. It's Jesus' approach and the disciples' approach. I've already mentioned uh, that the disciples appear to approach this as a theological puzzle. And while theology is essential and good, there's more to life and, and ministry for that matter than figuring out what's wrong with people. In fact, if all we did was explain to people why they're in the misery that they're in, we, would be, 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 do, we, we wouldn't be helping them at all. We'd just be describing the water they were drowning in, right? No one was benefited just by knowing. In fact, most people, not all, but most people know why they're suffering. Notice Jesus' approach and how it's different. He says, in effect, let's actually do something and help this man. Verse for we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. He's saying that he must 
do the work that God the Father sent him into the world to accomplish. Uh, verse 5 clarifies this as Jesus goes on. He says, as long as I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. In other words, he's associating day in verse 4, not with a, a solar day, but as a metaphor for life. Yeah, He must do the will of the Father while life endures. And Why? Because night is coming. In other words, his death is approaching. The death of everyone is approaching. Night is coming when no one can work. Uh, this is profound advice, simple, profound advice. The disciples were trying to figure out the cause of his blindness. They were engaged in theological speculation. And without Christ, I wonder how, what they would have done to help him. You know, they, they might have told him to repent of unknown sins, of sins committed in the womb. I'm not sure how one would do that. Or get him to engage in parents. Now think, think real hard about your life before I, I, I was conceived. What did you do? That's speculation. We'll never get there. And yet I, I can't help but think that we often approach people in a similar manner. To try to figure out the mysteries of the past and, and God's will that He hasn't made plain. Some people look back on their life and they either think they're suffering for what they've done or, or at a minimum that God will always punish them for what they've done. It's speculation. And people get stuck in the past in that kind of mental exercise. It does no good. Ecclesiastes 7.24 is very to the point. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? The implication is don't be distracted trying to know the unknown, to uncover mysteries. It can be scientifically proven that the longer you get from your past, the less you really remember, and the more the tendency to fill the gaps in your memory with things that may not have taken place exactly the way you think they did. Yeah, there are other people who engage in unknowns and mysteries uh, on the speculative side of, of theology and life, uh, try to figure out uh, free will, predestination, and the problem of evil, and in the meantime live fruit, unfruitful lives. Some of, I compare it to chewing on the bones and ignoring the fish. You know, we have to realize that God hasn't made everything plain. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. The things revealed belong to us. It applies particularly to our personal struggles in this world, and, and that's the great lesson here. Stay on task. Don't be distracted. Focus uh, on the work that God has given you day by day. Don't dwell on the question of why or what could have prevented this that happened so many years ago and where was God? You know, we repent of sin, certainly. We, we forsake it and we entrust our past to God. We, we look to Him who is omnipresent, who dwells in the past, the present, and the future. This is certainly modeled before us by Christ. And, and there's lots of examples of this in Scripture. Gideon comes to mind. I think I mentioned this the last time I was here. Wonderful passage. You know, when the Lord revealed Himself to Gideon, He was at an all-time low. Israel was enslaved. Their crops were routinely raided. Their 
sheep and oxen confiscated. And the Lord came to him and said, The Lord is with you, mighty man of valor. And his response was fairly typical. If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? And where are his promises? Where are the wonderful deeds that our fathers told us about? And God deals with Gideon the way he deals with us, the way he deals with everyone. He, he doesn't answer the question, why? Why all the problems? Where's God been? What will the future be like? Why am I here? What's my purpose? No, we read this, that the Lord turned and said, go in this might of yours and save Israel. It's almost as if he didn't hear the question. He heard it. But it will do him no good to know all that. He revealed that, frankly, in the same passage. They had turned from God. They should have known that. They did know that. And it's true that God has not called you and I to a ministry like Gideon's and certainly not to a ministry like Christ. We can't perform miracles. But he's given us work to do nonetheless. He said, go into all the world and preach the gospel and make disciples. He's given some of us children. He's given some of us jobs. He's given all of you a church. He's commanded us to worship on this day. He's told us to, to pray for the sick, to encourage the faint hearty and the weak. I'm reminded of 2 Corinthians 1 where that God comforts us in all of our affliction that we might be a comfort to others. There's so many people who have gone through and then emerged from difficult circumstances have been a tremendous comfort to others as they go through them. But looking back on our passage, uh, Jesus uh, focusing on the work that God has given him calls for the man, verse 6 says, that he spit on the ground and he made mud with the saliva. And then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and told him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. Well, as you might imagine, there have been many attempts to explain this mud. I think they're a waste of time. The simplest explanation is, is very plain for us to see. Jesus gives him a command that on the surface would make utterly no sense. Now mud, this is going to be profound, mud does not cure blindness. In fact, it, on the face of it, it is quite absurd. But it does one thing for this man and for us. It shows us the importance of simple obedience. Uh, of doing what the Lord says, even and especially if it makes no sense. As someone, I think Einstein, was quoted as saying, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, hoping and believing for a different result. Well, he was not a believer because uh, Christian obedience involved doing the same thing over and over again. You come to worship every Sunday. You pray regularly. You go to the same job, you're faithful to the same spouse over and over and over again. Yet we believe God will, in fact, is bringing about a glorious transformation in our lives through these simple, repetitive actions. Now, there are many examples of absurdity in Scripture. Absurd healings, absurd on their face. Second Kings 5, we have another wonderful example. Similar miracle, we're introduced to Haman captain of the Syrian army, uh, enemy of God, and we find out that he's a leper. And on a raid, he had taken an Israelite slave who he had put to work in his service. And one day, this Israelite slave girl said, well, if you were in Israel, we could bring in Elisha the prophet and he would heal you of your leprosy. He said that. She said that, and the mistress heard it, reported it. And before too long, Naaman is in Israel with a bag full of money 
He's going to buy a miracle and he asks to see the prophet. I love the way the prophet responded. Didn't even go out to see him. Sent an unknown assistant and told him to do this. Go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored. Now if you know the account, you know he ran off in a huff. He had to be persuaded by his servants to return. He's mad because it's absurd. The rivers in his country were even better than the Jordan River. They were cleaner. He failed to see behind the circumstance the power of God, the work of God, that really it is the Word of God that matters. It doesn't matter anything else. It didn't matter if he had washed seven times in the Jordan or just rolled in the mud seven times. If God said to do it, it's that simple. And of course, he returned. He obeyed, and his flesh was restored like that of a child. Second Kings 20, another wonderful example. Uh, Hezekiah, the king, excuse me, Jehoshaphat, surrounded by his enemies, cries out, prays. It's that well-known prayer that ends, uh, nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And the Lord reveals the battle plan. Brace yourself for this one. Uh, but not a whole lot different than putting mud on the eyes or jumping in the Jordan seven times. The battle plan was he had appointed men to sing to the Lord and to praise him in holy attire that would go before the army. You know, let's just send the choir out to battle. Does that make sense? It makes about as much sense as marching around Jericho seven times uh, expecting it to fall or uh, circumcising every male right before you entered Canaan. Uh, let's just wound all the soldiers. Uh, and yet God's commands are profoundly simple. And whatever the package they come in, however irrational it may appear, the most rational thing we can do is simply obey. Uh, the men believe the word of God. They simply obeyed. The man, man in our passage, verse 7, obeyed. It says this, that he went and washed. And notice the outcome. It says he came back seeing. You know, he left Jesus blind, but he came back seeing. He had to obey first. It's a very practical truth. The importance of simple daily obedience. While the Lord hasn't given us a command like this, and I don't expect one, He's told us day by day how to serve him. Uh, it would have taken this man a little time to reach the pool and to wash off the mud. But we read that after he obeyed, after he smeared the mud and washed it off, his eyes were restored. Well, I, I, before we close, it's helpful to look briefly at the response to this miracle. You might think that everyone would, would have been ecstatic with joy and excitement, yet shockingly, a dispute breaks out over the man. First, there were his neighbors who recognized him. John, the apostle, does a good job of pointing out that they knew him to be the blind beggar. Verse 8, the neighbors of those who had seen him before when he was a beggar said, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? They knew him, and now he could see. They may not have witnessed the miracle, but they certainly were credible witnesses to his identity. There was another group president, though, who disagreed in verse, verse 9. This group says, no, he's like the man, but he's not the man. And we don't know what 
motivates their disagreement. But then the man himself speaks, perhaps the greatest of all witnesses and the most credible. That No, he says, I am the man. He, he's certainly a witness to what happened to him. Later in the passage, another very highly credible witness, two of them show up, mom and dad. Now, they don't know how the miracle took place. They didn't see the miracle, but they know their own son. And, and just as a side note, you know, not aware of this, years would pass before John would write his gospel. The dispute would have easily have been laid to rest in, in weeks. You just answer a certain simple question. All right, if he's not the man, well, what happened to the blind man? Where did he go? Did he catch a, a train somewhere and start a new life for himself as a blind man? No, that's absurd. The dispute would even intensify more. The Jewish leaders get involved. What we see clearly is the wickedness of the human soul. It was already well known that the Jewish leaders were seeking an opportunity to kill Christ. They were building a case against Him. And in verse 22, we learn they had threatened to banish anyone from the synagogue who confessed Jesus as Christ. And so they interview the man. After interviewing him, it's clear he believes Jesus is from God. And they banish him. And this is where we see the final mercy of Christ. He didn't simply give him physical sight. He gave him spiritual sight as well. Jesus heard he had been cast out of the temple, and so he found him. And it's clear from Jesus' question that the man doesn't exactly know who he is. But in verse 35, Jesus reveals himself in that familiar title, Son of Man, from Daniel 7, a frequent title of Christ. And the man responds not only by declaring his faith in Christ, but by falling down and worshiping him. And the religious leaders would not have liked that. And the passage ends with Jesus using this very miracle as a symbol of the gospel. Verse 39 says, For judgment I came into the world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. The meaning is, is plain enough, and the Jew, Jewish leaders, they understand it too, that they and everyone in generations to, to come uh, who reject Christ are spiritually blind. They are in spiritual darkness. They are blind to their true condition. But this blind man who had been kicked out of the temple understood that he was not only physically blind, but spiritually blind, and that Jesus had forgiven him. And there's no small irony to being banished from the temple. First of all, his entire life he was banned from the temple, being blind. And you know, not a few moments after having that defect eliminated, he gets banished again. But the very gateway to God had come. The one that that temple, as beautiful as it was, was a dim reflection. Little did they know that they would be wasting their time in years to come worshiping God through that temple. This man had come in contact with the one who tabernacled among us, the, the, the gateway to God, the Son of God, and had been restored body and soul. What a merciful God we serve who would dare not merely heal this man's blindness, but would give him eternal life. And that is our hope as we suffer in this world, sometimes inexplicably, to know that it is for the greater good, the glory of God, 
and to know that Christ has overcome sin, death, and this very world. And if that is your hope, would you bow with me as, as we pray together? Lord God, would you examine our hearts? Would you remind us once again of your care, your love for us? How all of our lives, even through the difficulty, you have been present. Lord, help us to look to you today as you reveal yourself plainly. And Lord, not choose to dwell in the past, in the dark and deep past that's known only to you. Help us to trust your goodness, your mercy, and your goodness and greatness to save us, we ask. In Jesus' name. Amen.